Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food. My name is Steph and I am back with Dr. Izzy Smith. Welcome Izzy to the pod. Thank you, Steph. We've talked about this for a while, so I'm excited it's happening. Yes, me too. So for those who aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, can you give us a little bit of an intro and yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. So I live in the same great city as you, Steph, Sydney. Um, I, so I'm a doctor. I'm in my final part of my endocrinology training. So anything hormone related, I started doing medicine. I always wanted to be a physio, but then I got some kidney problems myself and had some wonderful experiences with the healthcare system. And then some absolutely terrible experiences with the healthcare system. And I wanted to be the person that gave people the good experiences, not the terrible ones and did medicine. Um, I'm very sporty and I thought it, I thought about doing sports medicine, but I'm really not interested in treating injuries. I'm interested in treating athletes. And I had this eureka moment that I could do endocrinology. And that's where I've really found my niche, which is women's health and female athlete health. And including in that is polycystic ovarian syndrome, relative energy deficiency, and lots of other bits and pieces. But apart from that, you know, I look after lots of endocrine problems. So thyroid, uh, osteoporosis, bone problems, pituitary, adrenal, lots of different hormone related issues. And yeah, I live in Sydney and I like sport and I've got two dash hand dogs that are sitting with me in the podcast. So if you hear some gnawing or an occasional bark, it's not me, it's um, either Hank or Arnold. We love the pups too. They are especially cuddly. Um, I'm so excited to have you on. And I think, you know, even just in that intro, it just goes to show that hormones is more than just estrogen and progesterone and reproductive health hormones. There's thyroid hormones, there's hormones involved in bones, your adrenal glands, so many hormones exactly it's not just our reproductive hormones and I kind of say to my friends who are like cardiologists so I'm like you think you're some big shot but all you do is look after a heart I have to look after bones pancreases adrenals lots of different things so much respect for endocrinologists it is you need to know every single bodily system because it affects everything so over the years, we've been connected on Instagram and we've had many conversations, I know, about hormones and reproductive health conditions, but one that we have discussed a whole bunch is PCOS and September is PCOS Awareness Month and this is why we've got this episode as part of our little mini series on PCOS. So before we dive into lean PCOS, which is our topic of the pod, can you give us like a brief medical overview of what is PCOS and some of the key concerns you see in this group as a doctor? So first, PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And we really hate the term because the polycystic ovaries is the least important and least thing that really classifies what PCOS is. Really, we think it should be called ovarian adrenal hyperandrogen syndrome because that's what it is. It's the ovaries and the adrenal glands making too much male hormones. And that can have sometimes a polycystic ovarian 
morphology or an ultrasound. That's why it's called that. But really, it's a crap name and it's the communication between the brain, specifically the hypothalamus and the pituitary, communicating with the ovaries via hormones called LH and FSH. And their ratio being a little bit out and meaning that the ovaries don't have this nice menstrual cycle with an ovulation in the middle, but instead they produce too much estrogen and androgens and the hormone levels stay the same rather than that normal up and down that we see in a normal menstrual cycle. Now, the concerns that we see as an endocrinologist kind of vary depending on the patients you see and their stage of life. Firstly, PCOS is a very broad condition. So it's not like everyone is exactly the same. Some people can have very severe hyperandrogen symptoms. Some people can have almost none, but they're just not ovulating. For my young patients, usually it's more about the elevated androgen symptoms, which is the acne, the increased body hair, the kind of male pattern balding loss. You know, that's the things that are really bothering them. Then in the more older age category, when I say older, I'm talking about people my age, um, early 30s, maybe late 20s, who are wanting to have children essentially. And it's more the fertility is the concern. I might look after them when they're trying to get pregnant. I might look after them if they have gestational diabetes because we know the main cause of PCOS is insulin resistance, specifically the elevated levels of insulin. They impact the hypothalamus and that's what causes that incorrect messages going to the ovaries and that ratio of LH and FSH being a little bit out. In saying that, it's also strongly genetically determined. We know people, you know, there's problems with the pituitary and ovaries themselves and there's genes that have been identified with insulin signaling. So I'm getting a little bit scientific, but insulin signaling and our pituitary that we've seen are associated with PCOS. Then the other age group after people of reproductive, you know, wanting to have children are people after that stage but before menopause that we're worried about the cardiovascular risk. So we know PCOS has increased rates of type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and it's really about trying to manage the cardiometabolic risk factors associated with the condition. So I kind of think it of three different main problems that we look after and people could be concerned about all three. Or it might just be one. And we have different things we help depending on what yeah. the patient needs. And I think that just goes to show like how, using sciencey word here, heterogeneous a group of people can be with the same quote unquote disease or condition. And we have to remember it is a syndrome, which is a cluster of symptoms. And some people are going to have more of some symptoms and none of the others, but you still actually fall in the same umbrella. But the management may actually differ a little bit to target those exact symptoms that you're trying to manage. Exactly. it's As you say, it's a syndrome. There's not one diagnostic test and it can range from someone having irregular cycles and some acne versus having full male balding, severe body hair. It's a really broad condition. And like I said, we don't really like the name. We have issues with the fact that it's all put into this one category. Some people don't have insulin resistance and that's more probably, and we'll talk about lean PCOS, that it's more a kind of genetic problems with the ovaries and the pituitary. So I think in the next 20 years, we will see a reclassification of PCOS, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't promise anything, but, you know, there are issues. And it means because people don't understand it well, people are diagnosed with PCOS and they think, I'm not going to be able to have children or I'm going to have a heart attack or all of these things. And it's, you know, it needs to be an individualized yeah, approach. And I think as well, a lot of people are diagnosed when they're in their adolescent years and then kind of popped on the pill to give a sense of a cycle, which might be the right management for that person at that time, but little education and, and awareness of it. And that could just be a sign of the times as well. 
I can imagine my clients who are in their early 30s now when they're 16, we're talking about a decade or plus ago, potentially. And then it's almost like they have to start from scratch when it comes to transitioning off OCP or just getting ready for their next life phase, whether that be fertility and so on. And I think there's probably a little bit of overdiagnosis. We'll talk about the pill and when it is really beneficial in PCOS for the endometrial protection. But you're right. You know, people have gone on the pill at 15 and then at 30, they want to have a baby and they go off it and they're like, oh my God, I have no cycles. I wish I'd known about this because now I'm dealing with all these problems that, you know, if I'd known about this five years ago, I could have been trying all the lifestyle. And I think it's women's health in general, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, Hashimoto's, other things that are you know more common with women, they just have not had proper attention, proper research, proper treatment, or respect by the medical world. And that is slowly changing, but there's a long way to go. And it's a shame that polycystic ovarian syndrome, I don't think, has been given the respect it deserves. And it's you know, women have just been told, you know, lose some weight, go on the pill, there we go. And you, yeah, took the words right out of my mouth, which was going to be my next question, because one of the most, probably the most universally frustrating pieces of advice my clients always relay to me from seeing their, I'm sure, very well-meaning healthcare provider is just go and lose some weight and come back when you want to have a kid and you're having a hard time. And that kind of, it feels a bit dismissive because people that do carry extra body weight with PCOS often have a very hard time actually losing said weight, like, and there's metabolic differences. And we can talk about that almost in a separate conversation. But there's also a whole bunch of people who meet the diagnostic criteria for PCOS, but aren't carrying extra body weight, and therefore are classified colloquially as lean PCOS. So, They just feel like the advice that's out there for PCOS, whether it be medical, whether it be lifestyle, isn't as relevant or applicable to them. So what is lean PCOS and is it different to everything else? Is it an actual medical term or is it just something that we've classified and how do we manage it? So firstly saying yes, it is definitely a medical term. The definition is probably a little bit silly in that it's based on BMI. So if you have a BMI of 24.9, you have lean PCOS. And if you have a BMI of 25.1, you have overweight PCOS. And that could be a weight difference of a few hundred grams. Going back to the underlying mechanism of PCOS, we do know it's insulin resistance and insulin resistance is associated with central adiposity. I divide my lean PCOSes into two groups. There's lean PCOS where they still have increased visceral fat. And we do see studies that show people with lean PCOS compared to BMI match controls still have higher rates of central adiposity, that visceral fat, so fat around the organs, you know, the liver and the pancreas, which is really strongly associated with insulin resistance. And they're more likely to have elevated triglycerides and insulin resistance. So those metabolic factors associated with obesity, even though their BMI might be within normal range. And often I have these patients where they might have, you know, really quite lean arms and legs, but be quite big around the middle. So I think of that as one type of lean PCOS where they still have those metabolic risks and some weight loss could be beneficial because we do know that central weight does really increase the risk of the insulin resistance and heart disease. As you say, weight loss, well, weight loss is just really hard regardless. Um, you know, our bodies are very, very good at trying to say the same weight. And, you know, when people do lose weight, we know it's really hard to keep it off. And, you know, I come from an endocrine background. We look at obesity and weight gain as a condition because it's 
genetically determined. It's impacted by lifestyle factors. So it kind of meets what we call a condition. That's controversial, but I think it's letting patients down who do carry more weight by not giving them the respect that they should deserve help with medical care and allied health care to, you know, potentially lose a bit of weight and it can improve some of their markers of health. There's a million other things they could be doing and it's not all about weight. You know, lifestyle factors will impact health so much more. So I'm going on for a bit of a tangent, but saying for some people with, you know, central weight around the middle, weight loss can be beneficial. Then the other group of people I think about with lean PCOS, my really quite lean patients who often might be athletes, they will already be playing heaps of sport and have a small waist, all of those type of things. And there's a bit of a crossover with this kind of functional hypothalamic amenorrhea and lean PCOS. And this is saying it's not just the insulin resistance. There's hypothalamic dysfunction in that. And even in functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, so REDS, and that's another topic, we do know that also has a genetic predisposition. It is still a degree of hypothalamic dysfunction. So there's patients that are really lean and they seem to almost cross between functional hypothalamic amenorrhea and lean PCOS. And they've done studies where they've seen people with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea as they're recovering, so as they're increasing their energy intake, increasing their food, cutting down the exercise, often they have slightly elevated androgens. And it's almost like there's been this dysfunctional communication between the hypothalamus and the ovaries. And as that is normalizing from almost no communication to normal and I'm sorry, it's quite scientific here, but as the LH and FSH starts to normalize, so they're the messages, the hypothalamus wakes up and is telling the ovaries to make hormones. Those ovaries are just a bit dysfunctional and they're creating some androgens. And they've done some good studies, not on heaps of people, but on, you know, around 30 female athletes with REDS that have shown in that 12-month period, they have often elevated androgens and then they normalize after 12 months. So what breaks my heart is when I've got, you know, you see athletes or non-athletes with REDS who then have no periods or irregular periods and slightly elevated androgens and then they're told to lose weight, exercise more, cut down their cars, and they just go back into REDS. That's where you need to have someone who's experienced with this kind of group that is this crossover between PCOS and FHA that knows that this can happen and does have faith and let it be and know that telling them to lose weight and exercise more is exactly what they don't need. Yeah, and lower-carb diets being the, the dietitian red flag of that. I'm like, no, no no fewer carbs. You need more carbs for this activity. Oh, exactly. And there's increasing research showing that it's the low-carbohydrate availability, which is really what puts people into FHA more than the overall calorie intake. So I guess that long-winded spiel is me saying when I think of lean PCOS, I kind of break it into two groups, people that have central adiposity and other risk factors like insulin resistance, elevated lipids, and then there's people that are quite lean without the insulin resistance or the other factors that it's more a hypothalamic ovarian dysfunction, and it can have a bit of crossover with REDS. And distinguishing between that is important. As we can see, this is this theme of PCOS. It is so broad and you really need to look at the individual rather than just put a label on it. Yeah, I can think of so many clients who have the best intentions of managing their health and classify for lean PCOS. And often they have histories of even being adolescent, kind of semi-athlete histories and, and there's been some dysfunction in their period then. And they're still active as adults, but they're not an athlete anymore, but they still maintain a lean disposition, but their diet is kind of slightly underfueled. but then they've got polycystic ovaries on ultrasound and so their period's a bit off and so they get diagnosed with PCOS. So I think often with those clients, 
they go and just find research about low GI diets and managing carbohydrate loads and insulin resistance and apply that to them when that could be doing harm. And a lot of people have polycystic ovaries on ultrasound and have nothing wrong at all. It's the gynecologist obstetricians that are more interested in that for like, you know, if you're doing egg collection, if you're doing fertility treatments. But from an endocrine perspective, if someone has polycystic ovaries, it doesn't really change my management of them. And it's those other factors that are so much more important, you know, looking at their endometrium, do they have a buildup, you know, thickened endometrium, all of these other factors. So, yeah, the polycystic ovaries – Maybe that whole name will change. We'll just actually get rid of that as a criteria. I so agree. It's just from the sonographers, right, that they use that term to describe the appearance of the ovaries and that's kind of how it got its name. Well, it is that we're going back a few steps, but the ovaries rather than one follicle developing and is then becoming ovulated. It's lots of follicles are kind of stimulated and then they're in this partially developed arrested state. But yeah, we know there's lots of issues with even reporting it and it's all those other factors. So I'm not saying polycystic ovaries don't matter in any way. No. But yes, whatever it is, if you you have an ultrasound and you've got polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, don't think that means you've got PCOS. No. Especially if you're young. Yes, and that was exactly what I was going to say. If you're young, it's very common for your ovaries to look like there's lots of eggs in there. And Yeah, yeah. Within 10 years of your first menstrual cycle, lots of follicles very common. Yeah, absolutely. Should we... I I guess we can kind of guess the answer to this one, but I'll ask it anyway. (laughs) Should we be treating or approaching lean PCOS the same way as PCOS more broadly in terms of looking at blood glucose control, lowering androgens, trying to support ovulation, still looking at diet, lifestyle, medical strategies? So in our lean PCOS, generally they never have a severe elevated androgen on blood tests or clinically. So from what I see and what my colleagues and I talk about, that severe phenotype is much more in the obesity insulin resistant group. For the lean PCOS, they're often seeing doctors more for fertility stuff and it will depend on if they've got insulin resistance. So if they've got insulin resistance and we generally still would put people on metformin as there is evidence that people, even if they're very lean, it can improve their fertility. Metformin is a medication we use in type 2 diabetes that is an insulin sensitizer. And one of the theories of lean PCOS is potentially some people are incredibly, incredibly sensitive to insulin in a way that doesn't even come up on blood tests, that you might do a glucose tolerance test and it's completely normal, but they might have, as I said, dysfunctional ovaries and hypothalamuses. And if we put them on metformin, some people do still have return of menstrual cycles. Obviously, the lifestyle is completely different and you're the nutrition dietitian expert, but it should be a weight neutral type of care that we're looking at prevention of weight gain. If someone has a normal weight, if someone is underweight, if their BMI is 17, 18, then we would be encouraging weight gain. And that's probably where I'd be really worried about that crossover of REDS, PCOS. But for, you know, most people, it's a weight stable, weight neutral model of care that we're encouraging normal, healthy lifestyle things. But you know, if someone's an athlete and I've had literally an Olympic swimmer tell me that she was diagnosed with PCOS and she was told to exercise more and eat better. She's training 15, 20 hours a week. It's not like if she trains 25 hours a week, her PCOS is going to go into remission. And I think, you know, lifestyle measures really have a place and really important. But for some people, it's not like just doing more and more is going to help them. And some people, there is just a problem that we can't fix with lifestyle and maybe they might need some fertility treatment. 
So yeah, so the lean PCOS is a very different type of management to PCOS associated with insulin resistance and obesity, but it will also depend on the individual and what signs or symptoms they have. Lean PCOS, what I generally find, the time I see it is when it's about fertility and getting cycles back because those androgen symptoms just are not as severe. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, and on the point of using metformin in the case of lean PCOS, because often it's a confusing one for many people if they haven't had that discussion with their care provider, which is why am I on medication for quote unquote diabetes when I don't even have insulin resistance and they feel very like confused by that. But I think the other thing is a lot of people refer to metformin as almost like this ovulation inducing medication, which it may have this indirect effect, if that's correct, but it's not an ovulation inducing medication like Clomid or Letrozole, which are like fertility medications that are used to actually trigger ovulation at a very specific time. Metformin's more used at baseline to see if it can potentially help you reinstate ovulation naturally. Yeah, so essentially it's lowering insulin levels. And that is the theory. Whereas the things like letrozole, which is a aromatase inhibitor, also sometimes used in breast cancer, is lowering estrogen levels. And, you know, Clomid, also an anti-estrogen medication. And it's thought by lowering estrogen, it will kick the hypothalamus and the pituitary back into normal drive to try and stimulate the ovaries to produce estrogen and ovulate. But we do generally use metformin first line trying to get cycles back but yeah it's not a fertility drug in itself and generally will be more efficacious if someone has you know insulin resistance overweight there's some bit of data that it can help with weight loss as well i generally don't find it helps but some people seem to find it really does help with weight loss and you know the theories with insulin resistance if you've got elevated levels of insulin you're hungry you're tired and harder to lose weight because insulin generally is an anabolic hormone that promotes weight gain yeah yeah Exactly. And there's all sorts of studies that have been done as well around the basal metabolic rate of people with PCOS just generally being a bit lower than everybody else's. And that's another reason. And that would make sense, you know, like chicken or egg, is it the PCOS that causes that? Or is it people with a lower basal metabolic rate gain more weight? So they're going to have the insulin resistant? Yeah. Yep. Directionality is sometimes hard to pinpoint in these kinds of conditions. (laughs) I think when we learn at university, it's like we have this really, this leads to this and this is this. In reality, things are so much more complex. Sorry, here are the dogs again. Yeah, so it's a lot of we don't know chicken or egg. Or like fascinating is polycystic ovarian subclinical hypothyroidism. That's one that people might not know about as much. We know people with PCOS are more likely to have subclinical hypothyroidism. We're not entirely sure which one leads to which. There was actually a fascinating study a while ago looking at giving metformin in bringing TSH down. Anyway, things that are much more linked and we don't always know cause versus effect which way and maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, the hypothalamus has so many functions. So if there's a dysfunction in the hypothalamus, it might be more far-reaching than just LH and FSH. There may be other effects on thyroid-stimulating hormones and all sorts of other stuff. Like, you know, prolactin impacts LH and FSH. It impacts the thyroid impacts. We have receptors on our ovaries. We have receptors for the thyroid hormone. I'm definitely not an expert in the entire hormonal system I the more I learn I feel like the less I understand (laughs) yeah no absolutely I I think that's a very validating statement though because I know a lot of clients do sometimes struggle because they get their insulin resistance better managed they start making positive progress with their management of PCOS but then they sometimes find it's tricky to then re-establish ovulation or re-establish their cycle or 
have trouble shifting weight and then it's because their thyroid pops up as potentially problematic and it's hard. It's hard to get knocked down in that way. Yeah, and I feel like I say to this to people every now and then, I say to my patients, the human body is not perfect. Mm -mm. We have not all evolved to be these perfect beings that if we just do everything lifestyle right, and that doesn't mean that lifestyle isn't really beneficial, but sometimes it's just not going to work. And I hate it when people feel they've somehow failed, you know, should I have just exercised a bit more or was it this or that? You know, no, we're not perfect and people have diseases and we have conditions and that's why medicine is really bloody amazing. And we always do the lifestyle first, but we shouldn't feel like we have failed if we need some medical support. And that's why it's there. Absolutely. And there's, it's not one or the other. We're on the same page here, Steph. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> We've mentioned this a little bit, but Something that is very tricky clinically is the difference between lean PCOS and hypothalamic amenorrhea and red S. And obviously, sometimes we can walk the line between those as we've kind of discussed. Is there anything that people can do on a practical level or from a testing perspective that would give us more insight into which side of the fence they may fall on? Yeah. So usually in hypothalamic amenorrhea, you'll have low LH and FSH. So that's blood test wise. Your estradiol levels should be low. Then otherwise, if they're both a little bit intermediate, looking at the endometrium itself. So you can do a progesterone challenge test. So if we don't know why someone's not ovulating, either doing an ultrasound, do they have a thickened endometrium? That would really be really suggestive of PCOFs. Versus do they have a very thin lining of the endometrium would be suggestive of functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. Then you can also do what we call progesterone challenge test of giving progesterone, taking it away. Does someone have a withdrawal bleed? AMH is sometimes used in PCOS that can be elevated, but we don't really have international consensus on what we classify as PCOS based on AMH. There have been discussions whether we could use AMH rather than looking at polycystic ovarian morphology, but a really, really elevated AMH is suggestive of PCOS. Other things, you know, the clinical history, family history, if you've got a really strong family history of type 2 diabetes, but then also understanding that there is this phenotype that's a little bit in the middle and it's kind of letting the patient down by feeling like as the doctor or as the dietitian, we're like, we need a diagnosis. We need to fit this person into this specific box. So recognizing some people might have functional hypothalamic amenorrhea and then when they recover, they have PCOS. And that's what happens to them. So there might not always be a clear answer. But the other thing is trialing metformin. So if they respond to metformin, thinking it's more PCOS. But estradiol, LH and FSH, um, if they're really flat, that's hypothalamic amenorrhea. Yeah, yeah. Good to hear that. That's kind of where I've always hung out in terms of my management. I think where people fall down is when they're trying to self-manage all of the above and they're getting mixed messages from both sides of the fence of this is what you should do to recover your period if you've got HA and this is what you... Yeah, I don't really like these really strict rules of like no running allowed or this amount of calories is what you require. Mm. People are more complex. The other thing is though... What is hard is their recovery from the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea because often they might have lowish normal estrogen levels, you know, 150, LH and FSH are low normal. And that's where I think seeing an endocrinologist with an interest in female reproductive stuff can be really beneficial because, yeah, not everyone fits into that one category. Yeah, absolutely. So for those listening with lean PCOS or maybe they're suspecting <laughs> that this might be part of their story from listening to today's episode, they can feel sometimes a little bit left out in terms of who can help them. 
So what are some of your top tips to our listeners who are navigating this or are thinking about getting assessed for PCOS? So first think about what is the problem you need help with and if that is fertility, then that would probably be more seeing a fertility specialist, so, you know, obstetrician fertility specialist. If your problems are androgen symptoms, that would be beneficial to see an endocrinologist. But before we talk about specialists, Having a regular GP is so, so critical. Your GP should be your team player in your health and having a sane GP, they're more invested in your health. And, you know, you could argue rightly or wrongly that that's everyone should be, every doctor should be invested in any patient who walks through their door. But the reality is when we build rapport and we build relationships, we know the person better and we are more invested and they know you better. So I think having a regular GP and accepting that you might have to pay a gap fee, but I think the care is just so much better. Mm-hmm. So that's one big thing. Then, as I said, if you've got lean PCOS and you're wanting to know who to go to, obviously dietitian support and someone like yourself who's highly evidence-based and understands what causes PCOS and that telling people to just go on a low-carb diet and exercise more is not helpful and you know I've, I've seen that I've had patients who recognize dietitians for type 2 diabetes who have BMIs of 17 or 18 and they're told to go on a keto diet and they keep presenting them to, to saying they feel terrible they're like oh just just keep going with it just keep going with it anyway just like any healthcare profession there's always people that are going to be a better fit for you and your condition and your profile and there's no recognized specialty training in dietetics like there is medicine and so you're really just going off of a person's presenting interest in that area but I think sometimes people try to and I see this especially a lot at the moment people trying to save money and go to something more generalized but then sometimes that ends up costing you <laughs> in other ways and you end up paying the the fee to see the specialized person and you've got to kind of clean up the mess mm-hmm. yeah yeah but otherwise other things with lean PCOS I ge- yeah like I said I generally see it for people with any help with fertility so having lean PCOS and irregular cycles you know, if you need some help with fertility, it's not going straight to IVF. There's lots of things that we can do to help with fertility if lifestyle doesn't work first. And thinking about it early, even if you don't want to have kids now, talking to someone of what you couldn't do, making sure you do have the correct diagnosis, make sure that other things have been excluded. Do you have a benign pituitary prolactin secreting tumor? Do you actually have adrenal hyperplasia? So making sure, you know, PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So one, making sure you've got the correct diagnosis, looking at what problem is that you need fixed, and then getting a team that you feel good around. Yeah, absolutely. And also, even if you're not trying to conceive or you don't have symptoms and you just got an irregular period. You don't want to know what's the cause. Yeah, you need to know because you can't just have live a life with no period it's not actually how we're optimally designed with female reproduction. And actually, we should talk briefly about the pill. Oh, yes. So the pill gets a lot of bad rep, and I say it's not the pill. There's no such thing as a medication being bad. It's if it's prescribed inappropriately is the issue, and that's exactly the same for the oral contraceptive pill. So the pill can be great for PCOS hyperandrogen symptoms. In PCOS, a little bit complicated, but you have lowered something called sex hormone binding globulin. And that's a protein that normally picks up our hormones. In PCOS and insulin resistance, that's lowered, which means there's more hormones floating around the bloodstream. The pill increases that protein. So essentially, it helps bind up those excess hormones. 
The pill also turns off ovulation and gives us synthetic estrogen and progesterone. So one, that is good because we're turning off the androgen production. And the progesterone is really beneficial because it's causing endometrial protection. PCOS can cause cancer. So if people have unopposed estrogen and they're not having regular menstrual cycles, there's stimulation of the endometrium that can then become hyperplasia and become cancer. And it's heartbreaking. I've seen women in their late 20s or early 30s that have a hysterectomy, secondary to endometrial cancer from PCOS, and it is completely preventable. So the pill definitely has a place in treating PCOS. Does it treat the underlying cause? No. Does it potentially mask the symptoms and mean that women don't know what's going on with their body and then when they're trying to fall pregnant, they've got no idea that they had all these fertility problems? Yes, that is also true. But the pill does have a role. But like you say, putting someone, you know, just going on the pill because you have PCOS isn't getting to the bottom of it. So, you know, knowing what is the underlying causes and knowing that when you go off the pill, PCOS is still going to be there and you're going to need to face the problem again. And I guess this is where some of our general preconception health advice is probably warranted as well of like, go off the pill maybe a little bit sooner than when you think you might fall pregnant and use other means of temporary contraception if you really don't want to be pregnant in a certain time, just in case it does take six months for a period. I turned 30 and I was like, I want to make sure that I'm having regular menstrual cycles. I'm not planning on having a baby anytime soon, but I want to know if I am concerned I'm getting irregular cycles or even premature ovarian insufficiency symptoms, because I know that they do happen. And I think Yes, definitely agree. Going off the pill a year or two before you want to have a baby can be a good idea. Or even going off the pill for six months, seeing that your cycles are regular, then going back on it. Not a bad idea to do in your late 20s. Yep. I have done it myself. (laughs) (laughs) We've had chats about these things offline. Yeah, we have. (laughs) Absolutely. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Dr. Izzy, to our chat about PCOS, lean PCOS, fertility? If you get diagnosed with lean PCOS, do not freak out, okay? It is common. There are great treatments, lifestyle and medicine that can help you achieve whatever you need to achieve. It's not saying that you're infertile. It's not saying that you haven't done it, you know, that you're not doing things great with your lifestyle. And also take away the bloody stigma with PCOS and know that people that are lean can have insulin resistance. People can be really overweight and not have insulin resistance. And then there's people that are really lean. My sister is my size and she had severe gestational diabetes. She had multiple injections per day. I've worn a flash Libre and I'm someone who, you know, runs every day and really quite lean. My blood sugars go really high up. I've got a really strong family history of type 2 diabetes. You know, knowing that genetics plays such a big role and just, yeah, don't be too hard on yourself. Know there's things we can do. See wonderful people like Steph. Get a good team behind you and know that you'll be able to reach whatever goal it is with a bit of work from everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I I so love PCOS. I don't love the disease, but I love working with it because it is just so amenable to change. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy that part of it. Like there's nothing I can do for somebody who, you know, I can't shrink a fibroid that's growing. In yeah. <laughs> what I do, you know, I can help them manage the iron deficiency as a result of it, but I can't do anything to shrink a fibroid, for example. But PCOS is just so amenable to change. Yeah, and just what last thing, knowing that PCOS, you can have PCOS and you can go out of it and then you can have it again. People think it's this lifelong condition. I worked in gestational diabetes during COVID lockdowns. We had so much more gestational diabetes than PCOS because people were less active. So knowing that, you know, if you increase your activity to even just a little bit, 
you can get out of PCOS and you might go back into it again, but it's because of that elevated insulin. So this is not a diagnosis for life. Yeah, so true. And it doesn't mean you've quote unquote cured your, your PCOS either. There's no cure for PCOS, but it's just very well managed. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me, Steph, and for all you do for the community. And I love your blogs. Oh, thank you. And I look forward to listening to the other episodes on PCOS too. Yes, we are very excited to have a few more episodes coming for September. So thank you so much, Dr. Izzy Smith, for your time. I'll leave your Instagram, which is amazing, down in the show notes. So please go and follow. And anything else that we can connect to Dr. Izzy will pop down below. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Don't forget to leave a rating, review, and subscribe and share it with a family member or friend. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.